And it's usually the case that people define it in one of three ways. The gospel is an atonement theory, a post-mortem experience, or a soteriological transaction, as opposed to it is the good news about Jesus Christ. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Rich Valitas. Rich, welcome to the show. Joey, it's so good to be with you. I look forward to a good conversation. It's definitely going to be an interesting one, one I've wanted to have for a long time. Uh, Before we dive into it, Rich, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and some of the work that you do? Yeah, I am a native New Yorker from the East New York section of Brooklyn, happen to live in Queens now for the past about seven years. Uh, Married to my wife, Rosie, for 15 years, have an 11-year-old daughter named Karis, a six-year-old son, Nathan. Uh, So uh, it feels often like my a primary job is to be a uh, principal of a two-student homeschool academy. Uh, and when I'm not doing that, I'm pastoring a church in Queens called New Life Fellowship, which started some 33 years ago in Queens. Uh, I've been the lead pastor for the past eight years and have been here at, at New Life for the past 12 years. Uh, so uh, that's about it, man. I mean, uh, homeschool principal uh and pastor on the side here (laughs) keeping you busy for sure (laughs) absolutely uh so today on the show we're discussing some of the themes within your uh your book which is entitled the deeply formed life uh real quick before we dive into that what was some of the some of the insights some of the the environment of what you were seeing around the time that you felt hey i gotta put some of these ideas onto page what was going on in in uh in some of the church, but also maybe some of your personal life. Yeah, for me, uh, the values that I write about in the deeply formed life, you know, contemplative rhythms, racial justice, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence, uh, those values really come out of the life of our congregation. And so those have been our values for the past uh, decade in terms of specifically stated that way, although we use uh, different language because uh, we call them our five M's. But for me, the reason I wrote it was primarily uh, out of pastoral concern in my pastoral context. Uh, I was having lots of conversations with people who were looking to go deeper in areas of contemplation, areas of racial justice, areas of understanding sexuality, and they were looking for something accessible, uh, something theological, uh, something uh, practical. And so uh, after having many conversations in the lobby after services or having pastoral one-on-ones, I just thought, I think I need to create something primarily for our congregation uh, to help them navigate some of these values more intentionally. Uh, It just so happens that our congregation is so diverse. We have over 75 nations represented in our church, uh, very multi-generational, people from all over the uh, diversity spectrum that I thought uh, this is probably going to resonate outside of our context as well. And so in that respect, I just, I didn't just see it as uh, a a pastoral response to my congregation, but I also, from a larger perspective, saw it as a reframing of spiritual formation for our generation. Uh, In that 
when we think about formation, there's some particular issues that come to mind, solitude, uh, prayer, silence, some of the Bible study, some of the core aspects of formation that I've learned so much from, from you know, these formation writers. But I thought for our generation, I think we need to think formationally about some of the larger areas as well. And so at the core of this, it's a reframing of what I believe spiritual formation is for our time. Now, a lot of people, maybe even our listeners, are of the framework that Christianity is a fire protection, in essence. You know, it's a, it's a one-and-done event. You give your life to Jesus, and now your, your soul is, is eternally secure. Why do you personally think that God is not just interested in the moment, but in the journey? Why, why is it a little bit more holistic than an event? Yeah, I mean, my, my simple answer to that is, uh, if we look at the life of Jesus and the invitation of Jesus, we'll see that Christianity uh, as a decision, uh, that kind of one decision that gets us that fire insurance, as you mentioned, is really nowhere to be found in the Bible. Uh, that to be in relationship with Jesus is to journey with him and journey for him uh, to the way of the cross uh, and the empty tomb. And so it is certainly a life marked by uh, a decision, but it's a series of decisions each and every day, each and every moment to say yes to his way and not the way of the worldly system. Uh, and so uh, we've gotten ourselves, I think, in a lot of trouble formationally and how we witness the world because we have reduced Christianity in this way to a kind of postmortem experience. Or a, or a decision that we make so that we could enjoy the uh, eternal bliss of heaven. Uh, and I believe in heaven. I believe in the new heavens and the new earth. I believe in the uh, eternal nature of our souls and such. But um, you're not going to find that reflected primarily in the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. Uh, really, it's about following him and bearing witness to the kingdom of God. So diving into some of these contemplative rhythms uh, that should be marked within the life of a, uh, a progressive believer. And what I mean by that is somebody who's just advancing in their faith. Uh, you know, you discuss in the first chapter that we have exhausted lives. You know, anybody who's experienced the last year gets that. That's not news. Uh, but can you unpack the importance of applying this, the, the way you worded it was a monastic spirituality? What do you mean when you when you say that? Yeah, when I talk about monasticism, our church has been, and I, my life has been significantly shaped by monasticism. Every, every year or so, I go to the Boston area to pray at a monastery with a number of monks, you know, getting up at three o'clock in the morning. I don't know if Jesus is up at that time, uh, but, um, but I'm up at that time, and those monks are as well. And they're praying, you know, five to seven times a day. Uh, monasticism is a way that's marked by a solitude, silence, an interiority, a depth of life with God, communion. And so when I talk about the exhausted life and the invitation that's before us, it, it, it's one that, uh, that adjusts our outer pace and, paying it, and pays attention to our inner space. Uh, and I think our world, you know, the past year has probably felt like two years. I think we've compressed a couple of years in the past year. And as a result, we are more anxious than ever, stressed out than ever, exhausted than ever, fatigued. And the monastic tradition really is an invitation to live a life of rhythms, rhythms of pausing, rhythms of silence, rhythms of interior examination, 
uh, rhythms of contemplation. This is for me, it's David in Psalm 27, four, when he says, one thing have I that I desired and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, a life of beholding God. And I don't know if we're typically taught that in churches, how to behold the beauty of God and live from that place. Uh, and so all of this is a reframing of prayer, a reframing of how do we engage God and live from that place. And I don't know if there's a way to move out of our exhaustion then from beginning with that monastic sensibility and that contemplative practice. Yeah, and, and connected to that, you tweeted the other day uh, that keeping the Sabbath was more about not worshiping the idol of productivity. We've got that in our culture, uh, and we even have it in our churches, let's be honest. Um, you know, what is that mentality actually a trap for? You know, that idea to constantly produce, constantly achieve, constantly, you know, is that just our cultural identity as Americans or is that like a human flaw? Yeah, I, I do think it's, it's something uh, deep within the soul that transcends just uh, our, you know, American culture. But our American culture I think, um, intensifies it. Um, you know, so I, so I, I do think there's something in our souls that can lean towards, I have to perform better. I have to accomplish more. I have to make a name for myself. I think there's something in our souls that, uh, because of sin, it's lodged in there, but there's something about the American context, uh, that accelerates that, that deepens that, that amplifies that and magnifies that. And so, uh, even with Sabbath, as you mentioned, it's amazing that something that was given as a gift to push beyond uh, performance and production is now used as the means to do more of it. And so, I hear folks, you know, I need to rest. You got to keep Sabbath so that I can be more efficient, so that I can be more productive. And I do believe that rhythms of rest actually do make us more productive and do make us more efficient. I do think that's the byproduct of it. But if that's the reason for it, we're missing out on it because the Sabbath ultimately is not to be more productive. As I mentioned in that tweet is to resist the idol of productivity, that my life is not measured by what I produce and how I perform. My life is measured in, some, in a place much more deeper than that by the love of God. And that's what the Sabbath invites us into. Now, you mentioned before, uh, and, and you discussed the idea within the book about the power of the gospel within racial reconciliation. You know, it is not a surprise to anyone listening that our country is fragmented, our world is broken uh, from the effects of pride and hate and selfishness, all of this manifesting in what we define as racism. But Christianity isn't the answer to this issue. Can you unpack a little bit what you mean with that? Yeah, there's, there, there's Christianity as we understand it from a, a gospel-oriented perspective where Christianity is fundamentally the good news of that something has happened in Jesus Christ and that in his, his life, his death, his resurrection, his enthronement, that the kingdom of God has come near, that the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. That's Christianity, I think, as reflected in the story of the gospel. But then there's another Christianity, uh, a kind of cultural Christianity, uh, a Christianity that's marked not by the good news of Jesus, 
but by particular cultural norms, by particular theological convictions that are more shaped by power, more shaped by fear, more shaped by the status quo uh, than it is by uh, the lordship of Jesus Christ and his cruciform and resurrected uh, way. And so uh, the, the challenge with our language is that, um, you know, I, I, somewhere I mentioned that, you know, we can be committed to being a Christian, but not have our lives deeply formed by Christ. And um, when, I, when I say that, I mean, there are plenty of cultural ways of being Christian. I go, to the, I go to church, I read the Bible, I vote in a particular way. There are particular issues that I'm supposed to be, quote unquote, supposed to be concerned about. And then we relegate that to what Christianity is. And when we go in that direction, we, we have no uh, social and spiritual imagination to address the massive issues like racism. And so, again, if the gospel is more than just our, our cultural norms and our theological convictions that uh, align with how we understand the Bible, but if it's something larger than that, something about God visiting us in the person of Christ, that gives us a more expansive view of what the gospel is, which actually empowers us and equips us to address matters of race, which is why when I talk about racism, one of the questions especially for people who have a hard time with it uh, and addressing it. I ask, how do you understand the gospel? How do you define the gospel? And it's usually the case that people define it in one of three ways. The gospel is an atonement theory. You know, this is what, this is what Christ did for me on the cross. The gospel is uh, a post-mortem experience. Uh, you know, I, I, when, I, when I die, I go to heaven. Or the gospel is, uh, you know, a, a soteriological transaction, something along those lines, as opposed to it is the good news about Jesus Christ. So the starting point for addressing race is actually our understanding of the gospel and Christianity. And uh, sadly, whenever you, I see someone who's hesitant about doing that, it's often because they have a very narrow and myopic view of what the gospel is and what Christianity is as well. And you can drop the mic right there. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, uh, just piggybacking off of that, like, where does that come from, right? Because most of us would love to assume that we are people of the word. We preach the Bible. When we encountered the gospel for the first time, we heard it correctly. Like, how did we get from the initial invitation of yeah. what Easter is to where we are? I remember going to some, hearing a class in seminary a number of years ago, maybe t uh, two decades ago or so. And hearing a professor say something along the lines of, yes, you're reading Paul, but you're reading Paul through the lens of Luther, or reading Paul through the lens of Calvin, or reading Paul through the lens of Zwingli, or whoever it was. Um, and um, what that professor did for me in that moment was to help me recognize the various filters. Uh, now, this takes work, this takes contemplation, this takes reflection. This takes lots of questions. Um, and I, th I don't think those things are bad. I think I've, I've, I've learned to appreciate elements of the gospel through the lens of those three folks and other folks that I've studied over the years. But I think we have to be really honest about it with ourselves. Am I really, is there a real pure way that I'm reading the gospel through the lens of, uh, you know, what Paul intended and what the gospel writers intended and what the largest narrative is in the scriptures, 
or am I reading it through the lens of uh, this person throughout history? I don't know if we're, first of all, asking that question. And I don't know if we're doing the hard work to actually go, you know what, this is not necessarily Paul. This is Luther. Uh, this is Paul through Luther. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think we just need to be honest enough. And so most people, I think, in church are not asking those questions. Uh, and so uh, every reading of the scripture that I have, to some degree, comes from a local context, comes through filters that I often don't even see myself which means I need to be really humble when I read the Bible, which means I need to ask more questions than give answers often when I read the Bible. Uh, and so the simple answer is, why are people doing this? And, and you know, see, I don't know if we're recognizing the lens and the filters. And so any, any reading of the Bible, I think, must begin with, who am I reading Paul through? Who am I reading Jesus through? Uh, and at that point, work our way out of that to try to come to uh, more conclusions that are consistent with what Jesus probably intended for his day and time and what Paul probably intended for his day and time. And along those lines of that humility aspect, that approach to reading scripture, there does come self-examination, uh, mm -hmm. which, you, which you talk about as a value, the internal reflecting of our inner selves. Some people, some listeners would look at that and say, well, that's you know, that's navel-gazing, that's prideful, we shouldn't focus too much on ourselves, uh, you know, but what's the balance between that? How does that connect to a, a deeply formed life? When I, you know, it's, it's something I hear on a regular basis in different places inside our congregation, for especially from folks who are new, and they're like, what are we doing here? To folks who I connect with uh, throughout this country and throughout the world. Um, the, the call to interior examination for me flows out of my understanding of the gospel. And what I mean by that is, I believe that Jesus Christ wants to touch every aspect of my existence, not just the external stuff, not just the way I think, not just the activities that I give myself to. I believe that the gospel is comprehensive and that christ wants to touch every aspect and every aspect of my life includes my interior life my interior world and so when i say we are called to a life of interior examination looking at what's happening beneath the surface looking at the motives of our heart looking at the longings of our soul the desires the fears uh these, these are all areas where Jesus wants to touch, and Jesus wants to heal, and Jesus wants to form. And so for me, uh, uh, that's my theological starting point. Uh, now, I recognize that for some folks engaging in interior examination, it can get to a point where it's now navel-gazing, and it becomes obsessive. And they're now uh, looking at every single motive that they have internally. And now they're living their life self-absorbed. And it's not about God anymore. It's about legalism. It's about perfection. It's about now trying to escape judgment or whatever it is. And I get that. But, if, but when I think about interior examination, for me, the goal of interior examination is not necessarily the greatest amount of self-awareness, although I think that's critically important. The goal of interior examination is love. 
That's the goal of interior examination. Now it comes through the way of self-awareness and all of that there, but that's how I frame it. I look within to look at all the areas that are prohibiting me from loving God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and from, my, and from loving my neighbor as I love myself. That's the goal of interior examination. And so if we can frame it that way, that this is really an outworking of the gospel, and the way to love, uh, I think you'll have a hard time uh, or someone have a hard time uh, not seeing that consistent with what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this world. And one of those ways that we express that love, primarily as Christians, is just sharing that with others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, what we would call evangelism or, or missions or just spreading the gospel. How does that then apply, that, that self-examination? How does that live itself out within our evangelism? You know, when I think about evangelism and uh, being missionally engaged in the world, um, I, I, I often think um, who we are is our greatest missional strategy who we are is our greatest evangelistic approach um it's often the case that when we think about evangelism and being missionally active we focus a lot about techniques we focus a lot about how to steer conversations to become spiritual conversations uh, I'm, a, I'm a judo master at these things, man. I mean, I, I know how to change every, and, and because I'm a pastor, it makes it that much easier. How to move any conversation, sports, WandaVision, whatever we're talking about, I could steer it very quickly to a spiritual conversation. And so we're taught often unwittingly, uh, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, that the goal of evangelism is technique and mission is to be engaged in a particular way. Uh, in the world that we live in, I think if people are not recognizing something different in our being, um, uh, a, a non-coerciveness, a, a non-anxious presence, uh, a humility, uh, a, a curiosity that comes from us, a willingness to ask questions, at some point, I believe we must proclaim the good news of the gospel. You know, it's, it's often the case that evangelism and missional engagement in the world is reduced to our cookie cutter ways and having particular formulas for conversations and leading people to cross a particular threshold. Uh, but I think missional engagement and, and evangelism uh, begins with our very lives. Uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have uh, important things to say and move a conversation in a particular way especially when that conversation is moving towards wholeness and healing and hope. Uh, but I do believe it begins with our interior examination of how are we showing up to particular places, uh, moving out of coercion into hospitality, moving out of formulas into love. Uh, and ultimately, whether someone decides to make a decision uh, to follow Christ, uh, you know, the question is, am I being a good gift in that moment to them? Uh, in leading them to God. So, uh, but I, I do believe this, this begins with that kind of reflection, contemplation. Uh, it's a way beyond formulas that we are often trained in, in most evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal settings. 
And most of this, as you know, for the sake of our conversation, has been very individual. Uh, you know, it, it does need to start there. But how does this then apply to the church, the local body, uh, the group of people that gather every seven days, whether that's physically or digitally? You know, how does this apply in a more positive direction? And, and, and sort of what are the implications of doing this internally? Like, what's the effect on the local church? I think more than anything in our time, um, that communal way of interior examination is really required and needed. And um, especially in a world that's marked by incredible division, uh, hostility, one of the greatest um, signs of the kingdom of God among us is a people that are equipped to move beyond their triggers, to move beyond uh, the uh, often shadow sides of our lives, the, the stuff that's within us that we're not aware of that contributes to more polarization and such. For us, one of the ways that we do that is, uh, and this is not something we've made up, there are churches that have been doing this for centuries, of creating rhythms of confession within our uh, Sunday worship gatherings, uh, within our small group environments, uh, where we're together, we're saying, there are things within us that we must repent of, confess, grow in awareness to, and uh, not for the sake of just our own private relationship with God, but the, for the sake of our uh, communal and corporate witness. And so for us, what does that look like? It looks like extended times of silence before sermons and after sermons. It means times in worship where we're recognizing the ways that we're harboring uh, unforgiveness and harboring resentment against someone who sees the world very differently than me and confessing our sins before God and receiving that forgiveness of Christ and offering that to others. It means that before our small group gatherings at New Life, we're talking about what's causing anxiety in us, uh, what's causing fear in us, what's causing anger in us and sadness in us, and holding that together as a small group of people together to pray for one another. Uh, These things absolutely can be uh, individualized, uh, but I do think that the role of the church is to create spaces where together, as the people of God, we can push on the same wall and say, we are all in the same boat here together. We're all somewhat anxious. We're all somewhat angry. We're all somewhat grieving. And how can we together in our liturgy, in the ways that our services are oriented and crafted, in the ways that our small group gatherings are, are, um, are established and organized, uh, to come to a place where we're sharing with one another what we're carrying. I, I do think there's something really powerful about externalizing that to the larger community beyond just our own privatized and personalized ways of engaging with Jesus. But that takes a, a reframing of what it means to gather as the people of God, a reframing of what it means to worship, that this is not just about my private experience. Uh, this is about us coming together communally uh, to offer to God together what's happening inside of us. It's powerful, man. Thank you. And, and thank you so much for being on the show. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book and how people can connect with you online. Yeah, Deeply Formed Life, uh, first book I've written, uh, came out in September of uh, 2020. Uh, For folks who are interested in it, they can check out richvelotis.com where they can learn more about just the book and other writing projects that I have uh, coming up. 
Uh, if they are want to catch me on social media, it's the same. Just handle Rich Velotis on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, those are usually the places where I'm trying to work out ideas for sermons and articles and seeing what sticks and then building off of that. And it's a place where I talk about the Knicks and in this season in particular, uh, all things WandaVision. So uh, I've been uh, engaging social media that way. If folks want to catch me there, uh, you know, they can. We'll throw it all in the show notes. But again, bro, thank you so much for being on the show. Joey, thanks for having me, man. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. Thank you.